Jeremy Schapp, you have been covering this story, the story of Qatar's World Cup for nearly a decade now. And you open the culmination of all of that work, this hour-long E60 special airing on Sunday, with the scene of the migrant workers who helped build all of the infrastructure for the tournament, the stadiums, the hotels, the roadways, and so on. And they're playing soccer. Tell me about that scene. Back in May, almost six months ago now, we went back to Qatar to do this follow-up to see, you know, what's happened in the eight years since our last visit, what hasn't changed, what has changed. And one of the first things we went out and taped was this group of foreign workers in Qatar playing a game of soccer at a school. You go. I think it was a seven on seven in a small field closed in by a wire fence. And this was how they were spending their day off playing soccer. They have a lead. They were excited about the World Cup. They were excited about the fact that it was coming to Qatar. They were hopeful that they might get a chance to see it, uh, you know, to go to the games in person. Are you excited about the World Cup coming here? I'm very, very excited. And I, I want to see some of the stars. It's a wonder goal by Lionel Messi. And they're able to bring it down. Sets his sights and scores sensationally. It's another brilliant goal from Kylian Mbappe. Trying to find a way past McLean, and he has Ronaldo's header! Wow, I can't wait. I want to enjoy the World Cup. I want to watch the World Cup. If possible, I want to be a volunteer. The World Cup is getting underway, and it's the biggest event in the world. Sometimes people call it the biggest sports event. But I always think to myself, well, what's bigger? <laughs> what's right. a bigger event, period, right? right? It's the biggest event in the world. It's the event that attracts the most attention, the most eyeballs, the most passion. This World Cup is different. It's taking place in a very small country, a country with just about 300,000 citizens, Mm. where 90% of the population is foreigners, people who've come from abroad to work in Qatar. The focus of our reporting, the reporting that we've done over the years, beginning a decade ago, on Qatar and the World Cup, has been on the plight of those workers. The conditions in which they have built this World Cup, made this World Cup possible. But the beginning, it was an issue that needed more attention focused on it, and then it got more attention. And now the question is, well, what's really changed in the last decade after people started paying attention to what was going on in Qatar? And what hasn't changed? Do you have freedom here to do what you want? Nobody has freedom here. Nobody. Nobody has freedom. You can't be free here. Never. When you watch the World Cup over Thanksgiving break in a couple weeks, you'll be joining billions of people around the world who will be peering into Qatar, probably for the first time. You'll see the futuristic skyline. You'll hear about how it's the smallest country to ever host the tournament. But what you won't hear is the reporting you're about to hear right now. So today, Jeremy Schapp tells us the story of the hidden costs of the most expensive World Cup in history and the thousands of workers from places like Nepal and Bangladesh and the Philippines and India and Sri Lanka who are still paying the price. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Friday, November 4th. This is ESPN Daily. 
So this thing starts in just over two weeks now, Jeremy. It's jarring to recognize that the World Cup in Qatar begins in 14 days or so. And this thing, this event is unlike anything else that we've really seen. I mean, there has been a controversy surrounding this since Qatar got announced as the host back in 2010. And we'll get into all of the specifics underneath this heading here. But just at the top, what would you say made it so controversial? Well, at that moment, people just said to themselves, Qatar, why is it going to Qatar? This is a country with no soccer tradition to speak of. They don't have the infrastructure in place. They don't have the stadiums. They don't have the hotel capacity, any of it. It's just a very small place. Qatar is smaller than the state of Connecticut. (laughs) And so we're used to World Cups. The last one was in Russia, pretty big country. The one before that was in Brazil, pretty big country. South Africa, Germany, Japan and South Korea, France going in descending order chronologically, right? Yes. Which of these is different from the others is Qatar. But beyond its size and the tradition and all that, anybody who's been to Qatar knows how hot it is there. Which connects to why it's happening, it seems, in November for the first time. Well, that's not what it was supposed to be, right? You know, it was supposed to be the World Cup takes place in the summer, every four years. And they said when this World Cup was awarded to Qatar in December 2010, and they awarded two World Cups at the same time then, they awarded Russia and Qatar at the same time, everybody said, all right, we're going to put the World Cup in Qatar in 2022, and they're going to basically air condition the whole country because usually it's about 110 degrees right around there in the summer. A little balmy, little balmy. A little balmy. They said, no worries, we're going to make it work. Eventually, um, you know, that turned out to be totally unfeasible, and that's why we've got a World Cup now that's taking place in November and December. But there are these questions, right? Questions that are logical and obvious as a result of what's different here, right? I mean, namely, how in the hell did Qatar get to do this in the first place? Well, yes, there were a lot of uh, suspicions and rumors and people just said to themselves, as we've been talking about, like, how did this happen? Well, it turns out it happened largely because the bid committee for Qatar engaged in bribery. Russia and Qatar's successful World Cup bids are already dogged in controversy. Qatar! But this new dossier, compiled by the Sunday Times, alleges widespread corruption in the bidding process as votes were bought and sold. And in 2015, Jeremy, you actually interviewed a whistleblower who was part of the Qatari team that bid on the World Cup and... This whistleblower alleged that bribes were made to voters who had control over exactly who would get that bid. Who was this whistleblower? So her name is Fidra al-Majid. She was a member of the Qatari bid team at this time as it was trying to get the votes necessary from FIFA's executive committee to be the host country for 2022. And she was a member of the team that went to Angola, to Luanda, Angola's capital, to talk to African soccer officials, including members of FIFA's executive committee. I don't think anyone took us seriously. We weren't anyone to reckon with. I don't think anyone really cared. Now, FIFA's executive committee, you're basically talking about 24 people who control the vote that determines who plays host to the World Cup. So each vote is enormously valuable. At that time, two of the members were suspended, so there were only 22 who were voting. So really all you needed was 12 votes to win the bid. And she was there in the room in Luanda, she told us, when bribes were offered. What did you see? In Angola. I witnessed um, the Qatari team um, offering to different EXCO members um, money 
in exchange for their vote. You were there? I was there in the room, yes. How much money? 1.5 million. Per? Per vote. To three different? To three different members. Three different members. What did they say? The members? Well, they agreed. They agreed. I mean, it didn't take much convincing, let's put it that way. It was quite a simple transaction. Where was the offer made? It was made in a private suite within the hotel we were staying at. Was it all three at the same time or no. separately? It was separate. What were you thinking to yourself after those meetings? Um, I knew Qatar would win. I just, I knew it. Um, it was obvious that we would win. So not long after that trip to Angola to meet these uh, soccer officials, FIFA has its vote, the executive committee votes, and Qatar wins. The winner to organize the 222 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. <laughs> And even after all these concerns are raised about how Qatar wins that bid, and even after all these allegations of bribery and the questions about whether it's even a suitable venue from just this infrastructure and very basic temperature perspective, the president of FIFA, Sepp Blatter, whose voice we just heard that, he makes it clear how all of this is about to proceed. There is not one single doubt that the World Cup 2022 will be organized in Qatar. Decision taken by the executive committee on the 2nd of December 2010 and not reversible. So the fact that this decision is officially and very conspicuously not reversible, as Blatter just said, the concern then shifts from how Qatar actually won this thing to what it's going to take for the country to host the World Cup. And that, Jeremy, is really what I want to drill down on with you today. Well, you know, when you're talking about a million and a half, two million people coming to a place that is not accustomed to these kinds of crowds, you know, you're not just talking about the stadiums. I mean, that's a big enough project in and of itself. But we're talking about the infrastructure. We're talking about the hotels. We're talking about public transportation. We're talking about building a subway line, improving highways, you know, preparing for this moment, right? The whole point of being the host, it's about image. And if you don't do it the right way, then, you know, this has been uh, an exercise in futility and worse. It's counterproductive. So it's not only going to be building all of this, so much of it from scratch, but doing it in a state-of-the-art fashion that says to the world, this is what Qatar is. This is what we can do. Again, there are only about 300,000 citizens. So most of the construction, most of the manual labor that goes on there is performed by foreign workers who make up 90% of the population. This is what has happened for the last 12 years at an accelerated pace. I mean, this is what was already happening in Qatar as Doha, the capital, was being built into a modern metropolis. But it's accelerated, of course, with the pace of World Cup construction and preparations. And so we're talking about hundreds of thousands, millions of workers on these projects, the vast majority of them from South Asia and from Africa. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about an estimated 2 million foreign laborers in Qatar today, Jeremy, as you said, compared to the 300,000 citizens themselves. And this issue of the migrant workers who are building everything for this World Cup, this is the thing that got attention. This was the thing that your reporting triggered back in 2014 when you explored this in depth for E60. Remind us what you found at the time. Well, back at that time, when we started looking into these issues, you know, we spoke to people in the human rights, in the workers' rights communities 
who had raised alarms and who were trying to get the message out to the rest of the world about what was going on, about this kind of particular specific labor system that was in place in Qatar, and perhaps the most passionate and the most influential voice at that time was the head of the International Trade Union Confederation, an Australian woman named Sharon Burrow. And her organization represents hundreds of millions of workers around the world. And this is what she had to say. Qatar is a slave state in the 21st century. The kafala system means you are owned by another individual. Everything you do is at the behest of another human being. The kafala system is essentially a system, a sponsorship system, they call it, that ties laborers to their employers. And your rights are negligible in this system. You sign a contract. You're really optimistic. You can send money home for your family. You arrive in Qatar. The contract is more often than not torn up in front of you and they pay you what they choose to. Under the kafala system, we're talking about you know, laborers who come to the country from Bangladesh or Nepal, wherever they're coming from, and their employers take their passports. You can't go anywhere without our permission. They prevent them from switching jobs. If you try to leave the country without your employer's permission, you're breaking the law. You could be arrested. And during your trip to Qatar in 2014, you visit the labor camps where these migrant workers are living under this system, the kafala system. How would you describe the conditions that you saw at those camps? It was really appalling, Pablo. Sanitation was poor. There weren't proper facilities for the workers to make their meals, to clean their dishes. This is in the shadow, right, of Doha, this gleaming city with these towers that were designed by the most famous architects in the world. And there are the most elite hotels. We're talking about 10, 15 miles away from where we're seeing these appalling dehumanizing conditions. By some measures, Qatar is the richest country in the world. They're living in an entirely separate Qatar. Here's Sharon Burrow, the head of the ITUC again. You live in a room with eight, 10, 12 other men. The cooking facilities are just absolutely unhygienic. They're terrible, terrible places, often with, in fact, no clean water. If you work in such extreme heat, if you eat such poor food, then ultimately that will take a toll. The country of Nepal here, so many of these migrant workers come from there, and I know you had a chance to interview some of them. What did they tell you? You know, the workers we spoke to at the time, they confirmed, you know, what we were seeing with our own eyes. What is it like being here away from your family? I feel sad, but what can be done? We have to leave home to earn money. We are poor in Nepal. We eat, we drink. Whether or not we wake up the next day is the fear. Why are so many of your fellow Nepali foreign workers here dying on the job? It's not just the Nepalese who die. Workers from every country are dying. Philippines, India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka. What are these people dying from, Jeremy? Pablo, when you've got thousands of workers, thousands of people working on construction sites, you're going to have accidents. You're going to have deaths. You're going to have suicides. In Qatar, uh, many of the deaths, though, have not been adequately explained. And when you talk about the numbers, when you talk about how many people have died building this World Cup, making it possible, the numbers are opaque. Uh, In 2021, The Guardian reported that more than 6,500 people from five countries in South Asia had died in Qatar in the decade after it was awarded the World Cup. They were talking Mm. about people from Pakistan, India, Nepal, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka. So more than 6,500 from those five countries alone. 
That figure includes uh, all the people from those countries dying in Qatar in all lines of work, not just in construction, not just working on World Cup projects. Qatar says that there have been a total, and I want this language to use it precisely, only three work-related deaths at World Cup sites total Hmm. and 37 non-work-related deaths. And um, people who study the situation, human rights advocates who study Qatar, scoff at those numbers. You know, what alarms a lot of people who study these numbers, you know, is that many of the deaths are officially attributed to cardiac arrest. Mm, why, Why cardiac arrest? They were not investigating the root causes of these deaths. They were sending thousands of corpses back home to their countries where they came from and saying natural causes, cardiac arrest, without explaining to the families left behind what had happened. And, you know, we talked about the heat conditions. I mean, you can imagine working in the heat in Qatar and very poorly regulated in terms of what was in place to protect the workers from the heat. But when you talk to officials there, it's like nobody has died from heat stroke. And so going back to this time now and thinking back on it, 2014, when you talk to Sharon Burrow about what she thinks of this system, the kafala system and the human rights implications here, how does she refer to all of it? Well, she couldn't have been clearer. What kind of a failure is it on the part of the international community if in 2022 the World Cup is being held in a Qatar that resembles the Qatar of 2014? It's uh, insanely criminal. Put the conditions of rights, of an end to the kafala system on the table as a price for the World Cup. The Qataris will take it. If they don't take it, They don't deserve to have the World Cup. Coming up. Qatar attempts to improve its working conditions. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue, and ready for the play. And boom, Añejo Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is hypnotic and tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky. 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. So, Jeremy, in 2014, you release with E60 this report into Qatar that shines this spotlight, a global spotlight, honestly, onto this very rich and very small country and the injustices of the kafala system. Some neighbors say they face dangerous working hours, squalid living conditions. These beautiful buildings you see behind me, who's building them? Under what conditions? That was the average death rate there last year. One every 48 hours. After this new degree of international attention, what followed? Well, what followed in the immediate aftermath of all of this negative attention, Qatar dug in its heels. Qatar basically said, we're not going to get pushed around. That, that was the immediate aftermath. But the International Labor Organization, which is the United Nations agency that protects worker rights, went to work on this issue. And by 2017, with the backing of organizations such as the International Trade Union Confederation, demanding change, insisting that things change. Foreign migrant workers in Qatar have become suicidal after being trapped without pay by employers. They have been forced to depend on charity from others simply to eat. And none of our sons and daughters would live there because we wouldn't let them. 
and we have to do something about that for all migrant workers here. It's about human dignity. And over the next several years, as the World Cup gets closer and the construction just keeps building and building and more workers are brought in from around the world, the kafala system is weakened. The backbone of it is is pulled out, is yanked out. What exactly are the new laws that result? So what we're talking about at this point is, you know, we had mentioned that, you know, your employer gets your passport. Your employer controls your freedom of movement. That's going away. If you want to leave the country now, you're supposed to be free to leave the country. If you want to switch jobs, you're supposed to be free to switch jobs. If your employer's not paying you or if they're treating you in an inhumane fashion, you should be able to take them to court to take them in front of a higher authority and say, this is what's going on. And the expectation is that things will change or that those who mistreat workers will be punished for doing so. It's about the dismantling of the kafala system to benefit the workers, which now Qatar is doing under pressure from the ILO and from international human rights groups. This is the backdrop to what happens with your return trip to Qatar just a couple months ago now, right? Because you had gone back to see how these conditions had improved, how real this was. And part of what you got to see was this building, this stadium that has been called the crown jewel of all of the edifices that have been constructed for the World Cup. Describe this crown jewel. Yeah, so we're talking about Lucille Iconic Stadium, which is, you know, the centerpiece of Qatar's World Cup, one of the eight stadiums. It's now the largest sports arena in the Middle East, has a capacity of more than 90,000. 10,000 laborers spent half a decade building it. Mm. Um, You know, we talked about the World Cup's biggest event in the world. This is where it's happening, right? This is where the final, the championship game on December 18th between the last two countries standing will take place It's so mind-blowing. I mean, you know, a lot of these numbers, you know, we're numb to. You know, we're talking about billion-dollar stadiums in Dallas that Jerry Jones builds or, you know, what it's going to cost in Buffalo, you know, to build a new stadium. And the Sochi Olympics were out of control. But what they're saying, Qatar's World Cup, we're talking about $220 billion. I I sound like Dr. Evil. $220 billion, (laughs) which is 15 times the next most expensive World Cup. Jeez. And obviously, you know, going back to Qatar, none of this stuff had been built when we were there eight years ago. We wanted to see what it took, not just technically, of course, but in terms of the human toll to do something like this. Construction is not just concrete and steel. Construction, again, like the football, is people, first and foremost. We spoke to the project manager at Lucille Iconic Stadium, Tamim El Abed. So the people building the stadium for us have to have a certain level of care applied to them. How did you guys do, you think? How would you grade yourselves on how you took care of the workers? It's a good question. If I claim perfection, I'll undermine my own credibility and I will have failed. To answer your question, I would look at where we stand today as a country and as a program versus where we started out 2010 when Qatar won the right to host the tournament. When the decision was taken to host this tournament and therefore have to build the facilities for this tournament, part of that decision was to do it right. To reshape, revamp the entire industry so that post-tournament it continues to operate at an international level. It came from the top. That directive, which he says came from the top, the directive to improve, finally, these working conditions, what did he mean by that? He meant the top of the Qatari government. So we went to speak to a man named Mohammed al in the Ministry of Labor, the Undersecretary for Labor, who many describe as the driving force behind implementation of the reforms in Qatar. And he spoke to us in Arabic through a translator. He said the following. So 
There are many problems, but through our recent reforms, such as amendments to laws and the issuance of new laws, the aim was to eliminate and reduce complaints, problems and work injuries. It allows more freedom to workers and provides greater protection to attract them to work in Qatar. And on this same trip, you were also able to speak with the workers themselves. Did they confirm what was just claimed there, that conditions had in fact improved? Yes, many did. And I should you know, preface this by saying, Pablo, you know, we spoke to some workers as we were being you know, accompanied by Qatari government officials. Mm. But even some of the workers we spoke to when there weren't government workers around and it wasn't arranged said that, yes, they feel uh, the conditions have improved. The work in Qatar is excellent. Everything is fine. How do your employers, how does the company treat you? The company treats me well. They treat me well. They provide food and water. The work in the company is good, as I work only on road and asphalt projects. We were just speaking a few minutes ago, Pablo, about Sharon Burrow, the head of the International Trade Union Confederation, who a decade ago was the most outspoken, the most vocal and influential critic of what was going on in Qatar and what would be the cost of the World Cup there. Yeah. And we went to see her again in Brussels at the ITUC's offices there to see what she thinks about what's happened there in the last few years. I can tell you now the kafala system is dead, so you see a very different Qatar. It's not perfect because the challenge is implementation, but the laws are not the laws of exploitative modern slavery anymore. If you're hearing Sharon Burrow, who eight years ago raised the alarms about what was going on to a greater extent than anyone else, said thousands would be dying, those people are confused. Well, of course. But again, I'm talking about changing the law, putting the disputes uh, resolution processes in place. Not just the law. You're talking about the lives of the workers. Exactly. And, uh, and you cannot uh, protect the lives of the workers if you don't have dispute settling processes based on the rule of law, which indeed guarantees rights to the workers. This government has done everything we've asked and continues to do what we ask in good faith. And in terms of what you got to see with your own eyes this time, what, what sticks out in your memory? Well, one of the things we did when we were there this spring, we went to a place called Labor City, and it opened in 2015, an $800 million government-owned housing facility for workers. It's on the outskirts of the capital, and we're talking about a capacity of like 70,000 people who can live here in 55 buildings. And what we saw, it was very different from those labor camps we saw back in 2014. This, you know, uh, was a place that was clean, that had a, a medical clinic, that had common rooms and TV and internet. Trust me, not luxurious, Pablo, but this was a marked improvement over what we saw at those labor camps in 2014. And look, when we went to see these, this site, and this was a tour, you know, it's controlled, right? We are right. accompanied by government officials. Yeah, and if I can just be cynical here, Jeremy, on that note, I mean, it does sound on paper kind of too good to be true. I mean, I wonder if you spoke to people who may have disagreed with the general notion that things were actually that much better. Oh, we spoke to many people who said that they're not that much better. You know, we still have so many components of the kafala system intact, if not in law, then in practice. You know, in the last 18 months, there have been several labor protests in Qatar, construction workers going on strike, saying they haven't been paid. Protesters have been deported. Essentially, it would seem, for protesting. Mm. 
कंपनी बेच रही है ना प्रॉब्लम है ना वी स्पोक टू वर्कर्स हुटेलिएशन When you tell an employer that you want to switch jobs, bad things can happen. Your pay can be withheld. Your work permit can be withheld. We're not talking legally necessarily, but these things still happen. And you know, the fact that these protests are taking place is it a positive change that workers can now protest in a way that didn't even seem possible, let's say 10 years ago? Yes, but the fact that they still feel the need to and and don't feel that their concerns are being addressed, of course that paints a different picture. And so this system that is theoretically becoming less feudal, less archaic, Jeremy. I mean, I am curious when you speak to these migrant workers and they bring you stories that indicate that the reality underneath is actually far less rosy than is being presented. What are they describing here? You know, again, the laws are the laws. Enforcement is another matter. There are always going to be, unfortunately, right, unscrupulous employers. And, you know, the heart of the matter is whether they are being disincentivized to be unscrupulous. And we spoke to a worker from Bangladesh named Ghazia Rahman, and he told us his story in Bengali, his language. He went to Qatar in 2018 And as is the case for most of the workers who go there, their work visas are arranged by these recruitment agencies in their home countries. And many of them are unscrupulous and charge exorbitant fees to make these arrangements. In his case, he says he had to take out a $4,000 loan to pay the fee. Words can't explain it unless you experience it. The work was so hard, so hot. Our work was breaking stones. We had to work 17 hours a day. Gazier told us that in the more than two years that he was working in Qatar, He was only able to send home about $880 to his wife and son. And when he tried to switch jobs, he told us the company that he was working for wouldn't allow it and didn't pay him, withheld his pay. They didn't pay our salaries for three straight months. We then began to protest. That company had 190 employees. Everyone joined that protest. We stopped going to work. That's it. We stopped the work. That was the protest. Nothing more. Gazier told us that his employer revoked his work permit and didn't tell him, which meant that he wasn't in the country legally anymore. Mm. And he says they did this to dozens of his co-workers. In Qatar, police check IDs in the street. They stopped the car to check IDs. During such a check, they arrested us. I was thrown into jail at that time. At that time, we didn't have passports. When the police went to the company for our passports, they didn't even give us our passports. Then we stayed in jail for three months and ten days. Why do you think this happened to you? I have no idea. I only know that I missed two days of work at the company. As far as I know, that was my crime. That was my only offense. As far as I know, I didn't do anything. So Gaziar, because he doesn't have this work permit, after he gets out of prison, he has to return home to Bangladesh because he's not in Qatar legally. So now he's back home in Bangladesh. He's working as a farmer. He's struggling to pay off that huge debt he incurred paying the recruitment agency, getting a loan to pay the recruitment agency to bring him to Qatar. Mm. 
he still says, Gazier, that, you know, the last six months that he worked, he never got his money. He never got paid. And now he's back home in Bangladesh and he's got to pay off this big loan and can't see how he's going to do it. It was terrible in Qatar, but coming back has also been bad. If I hadn't gone to Qatar, I wouldn't have to suffer now. I want to let the world know Qatar is not good. The injustice Qatar does to its laborers is really unfair. It's wrong. After the break, Jeremy speaks directly to the Qatari government in an attempt to get some answers. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Delicious meat nutritious. In the snack that packs a real protein punch, wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. Each one-ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Trust me, I've been eating them like there's no tomorrow all week. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on the go. And you, like me, are on the go a lot taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries, whatever it may be. Well, the good news is not only are Wonderful Pistachios a complete protein providing all nine essential amino acids, they're also great for all your adventures. So whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snack game today. Visit WonderfulPistachios.com to learn more. So, Jeremy, you had the opportunity to challenge the Qatari government on this subject. And you spoke again to this labor secretary that we've been hearing from on this show already. And you heard from him on the question of how much these conditions really had improved, especially after you went out and heard these disturbing firsthand accounts from the migrant workers we're talking about. What did the government have to say for itself on that? I asked Mohammed Alobidli who's speaking to us through a translator. He was speaking in Arabic. I asked him about these strikes and these protests and what they say about the situation in terms of labor in Qatar. There have been strikes. There have been protests. What happens when companies don't treat their workers the way they should, the way they are obligated to? What do you do? Yeah, it's... We faced some of the problems mentioned and others, but the ministry is very strict on workers' rights and does not permit any violation, especially in wages. The company owner will be punished directly in case of any violation. The employer is also imprisoned until the workers' rights are fully fulfilled. The existence of such problems is real and expected. And so it's clear at this point that the Ministry of Labor believes that they have the laws in place to protect these workers. But your reporting is also telling us just an entirely different story. And so I do want to be very blunt about the simple fact here that migrant workers are still dying in Qatar. And I know that there are also questions about what the government owes. What does the government owe these workers and their families once they die? When a worker dies in Qatar, what should happen, first of all, is there should be a real examination of the causes of death. 
what's happening in Qatar seems to suggest that's not happening. And then, you know, at a minimum, families, survivors are supposed to get the money that is still owed these workers. And when someone dies, you would expect there to be some kind of compensation for the death, for the loss of future earnings as well. But in Qatar, the way they classify deaths, the way that they go about seeing that these things happen has been a complicated process, not to the satisfaction of many. Here again is Mohammed Al-Obaidli. There are many cases in which compensation and payment is made. But to clarify, these procedures apply to deaths that occur due to work. Other causes of death are not covered. As we are talking about deaths at work or work-related accidents only, we don't have any of these cases. So again, Pablo, these reports indicate that 6,500 foreign laborers, migrant workers, have died in Qatar since 2010. The officials in Qatar say only three work-related deaths at World Cup sites total and 37 non-work-related deaths, and that none can be attributed to the heat. Mm. We spoke to human rights advocate Nick McGeehan, who uh, formerly was at Human Rights Watch. He's a founder of Fair Square, which advocates for foreign worker rights around the world. And he said, the unexplained death rate should be around 1%. That's what it is in the US, France, UK. In Qatar, we're talking about unexplained death rates that are 60 times in excess of that Mm. for migrant workers meaning these, you know, where you're not getting a real explanation for why they have died. So when you talk about Qatar and you talk about the reforms, the ways in which they have made efforts, it seems, to improve the lot of migrant workers, you know, there are still so many issues and so many questions that need to be asked. In terms of attitudes here, people who value foreign workers and respect them as fellow human beings, how would you say attitudes have shifted in the last decade? I've mentioned this before, and you're still asking me about it. Honestly, we have respect for labor, whether before or after the laws. You know, sir, not everyone agrees that there was respect and that there were processes in place to help the workers, human rights organizations, the media. Does Qatar have reason to be proud of where it is now on this issue? We do not work to satisfy these organizations. We also welcome criticism from organizations that work with us on the ground. As for destructive criticisms, we do not take it. Because we are all proud of what we have achieved. On the subject then of constructive criticism, Mm. Jeremy, what, what do you think is missing here from the current picture as you understand it of migrant workers' rights in Qatar? Well, I think there's still a lot of big issues, Pablo, and... Among them is the right to form trade unions, which is not a universal right there now to ensure that workers' rights are respected. Um, there's you know, minimum wage now, but it's not a lot of money. We're talking about $275 a month in the richest, one of the richest countries in the world. I mean, the, the big picture that remains with me 
in a lot of ways, Pablo, having been there a couple of times now yeah, and reporting on these issues, you know, it, it's, it's a hard life. You know, what these workers go through, these are tough conditions. It's a tough life. It's hard work. Because these workers go there to make more money doesn't mean anybody should be allowed to mistreat them. Mm. Because they made the choice to Qatar doesn't mean that they shouldn't have rights and that they shouldn't have decent lives. And the picture I come away with, the overriding story to me, is how heroic it is for these migrant workers to do what they do. They are there and they are living these lives, which are difficult lives, as I keep saying, to help their families back home, to pay for their children's education, to make a better life for their families and for their extended families, and they are sacrificing. And if that's not heroic, right, I don't know what is. No, I mean, Jeremy, there's there's an American resonance there, right? The idea that you go to a foreign land to make a better life for everybody who's counting on you to provide for them. And so when I watch this World Cup, it's going to be really hard for me to to ignore everything that we've talked about today. But I am curious, you know, there is a fundamental question here at the very end, which is when this is all going to be over, when the most watched and important event in the world is done, what is going to be left? What's the human legacy here as Qatar's World Cup is concerned? Look, you know, everybody's going to be watching these games in a few weeks. It is, as we established at the beginning, it's the biggest event in the world. The most watch, the event people are most passionate about. You're going to be watching the stars and the national teams. And, you know, what FIFA doesn't want you thinking about are those migrant workers. Qatar doesn't want you thinking about what it took to make this possible and the human toll. The broadcast, Jeremy. I mean... We're not going to be getting this on TV either. That's right. Fox has said it's not an issue that it is going to cover as it broadcasts these games. But it's important. And you should be aware of what it took. Jeremy Schaap, thank you for making us aware of everything you found. Thank you, Pablo. You can watch the latest E60 special, Qatar's World Cup, this Sunday at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on ESPN, or you can stream it afterwards on ESPN+. I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily, and our show is produced by Bradford Craig. Happy birthday, Bradford. Alexander Hyacinth, Mike Johns, Heather Lombardo, Ryan Antel, Mike Philbrick, Andre Soto, Andy Tennant, Chris Tuminello, and Aaron Vale. Special thanks this week to Tyrus Ray, Max Brodsky, Mike Farrell, and Jackson Agelow. I'll talk to you Monday.